Hello and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 12 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals, entrepreneurship, and coffee education. Today is guest Coffee Smarter expert Chris O'Brien, the founder and head roaster of Coffee Cycle Roasting, is no stranger to regular listeners of this show. The conversations that I had with him five years ago in the early days of Coffee Cycle are the reason Roast West Coast, the coffee podcast, even exists. Today, he is going to help us get coffee smarter by walking us through the basics of sugar and dairy and coffee. We talk about how we can avoid masking the flavor of the coffee, but we take a detour through direct trade to get there. If you're listening in San Diego, I strongly recommend heading over to the Coffee Cycle store in Pacific Beach as soon as possible. The shop is celebrating their fifth anniversary with exclusive in-store only coffee releases, and I have it on good authority that there will be cake pops and cupcakes, at least until they're gone. I certainly don't want to miss out on a cake pop, so let's jump right in and get coffee smarter today, courtesy of my coffee sensei, Chris O'Brien, on the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. All right. Hi. Hey, buddy. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Christopher O'Brien, how are you today? Well, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I've had a good day so far, and I'm looking forward to talking with you a bit. And um, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of worries out there, but I feel like I'm meeting my challenges with uh, relative aplomb. That brings me to the first thing I wanted to say to you, which is happy five-year anniversary at Coffee Cycle. And it's actually six years, if you include the bicycle year, which uh, I'm assuming will be called the lost years in your memoir someday. (laughs) I like just calling it the bicycle year. That sounds pretty good, you know? The bicycle (laughs) year. Uh, So you've been in business for six years, but you've been in your location in Pacific Beach for five. It's a big deal. I know that because people always say that. But for a small (laughs) business to survive five years is an accomplishment no matter what your levels of success are. So congratulations. You're celebrating by offering some direct trade coffees. I know that's something that's been important to you since you started roasting, but it's not necessarily an easy endeavor, especially if you're not traveling and you're also operating a cafe 365 days a year, give or take. Why is getting some direct trade offerings important to you? And what is special about the ones that you're going to be offering for your five-year anniversary, which is actually this weekend. Well, I'm so flattered that you would ask. Thank you. Um, and, and that you, you care about that sort of thing because direct trade coffees are really important to me, as you said. And they're important to me because I think, you know, we all care about issues that we hear about in the world, right? We all care about poverty and hunger and all things like that, at least to some degree or other. But when you put a face and, you know, you get to kind of have some some personal interaction with people that have these struggles that you hear about, you know, it's it's different. It just hits different. And I've heard of fair trade coffee since I've been in coffee, which is over 20 years now. Um, I've been in coffee for 22 years since I was 16. Oh, my first goodness. You're, you're so old. <laughs> Coming from you, I can only laugh, um, and that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> but, 
but you know, it, it, it is kind of crazy to think that I've been working in coffee for as long as, you know, some people have been alive and that's, that's, you know, there's plenty of people that have worked in coffee longer than I have, but you know, you, you hear about working and uh, offering fair trade coffees and that that's important. And I think we've talked a little bit about this in previous episodes, but you know, sometimes I think about fair trade as being sort of like a minimum wage. So coffee gets traded as a commodity on the stock market, basically. And investors are betting on the price of coffee and guessing whether it's going to go high or low. So if there's a bad frost in Brazil and the harvest is going to be low, chances are the price of coffee should raise because there's going to be less coffee out there, less supply and equal demand. And therefore, they're going to bet that the coffee price is going to raise. And so betting on this price, regardless of whether there's a frost in Brazil or not, or what the global supply and demand looks like, betting on the price, whether you're betting high or betting low, will actually affect the price. The price of coffee gets manipulated by people investing in it in the commodities market. And that happens to such an extreme that the price of coffee hasn't changed that much in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And that might sound like an exaggeration, but really, like, if you go and look up, we call it the C market price, the global commodities market price for Arabica coffee, you know, it really hasn't changed that crazy dramatically over that length of time. And, you know, to a coffee farmer, a price change of 10 cents might be dramatic. But when you think about how much the cost a gallon of milk here in the United States has gone up in the last 40 years, it's been more than 10 cents, you know? <laughs> At least I'm pretty sure it has. You know, we know that the coffee price is important and we know that it hasn't changed that much. And we know that there's this thing called fair trade that establishes sort of a minimum wage. And minimum wage, fair trade stuff is important. It's good to have a baseline for which people should be paid and make sure that they can plant their crop again the next year and feed their families and, you know, ideally have like a halfway decent quality of life. But when you meet people that are going to college to learn about coffee, that have been the, you know, working on the family farm that's been owned for generations and, you know are tending plants that their grandfather, you know, planted or, you know, uh, discovering things that, you know, um, previous generations have been doing. Uh, when you realize the history and the, the, the human effort involved in the farm process, and when you can put a face to that human effort, and when you realize that this, this other human is, is doing something that you're not even close to capable of doing, you know, it really can make it strike home that this is this is someplace that I can make an impact. And not just that I can make an impact, but holy smokes, we all drink coffee. There's so many people that drink coffee. I mean, sure, not we all. There are tea drinkers out there, and there are people too. Uh, and there's people that don't drink any caffeinated beverages, and there are also people too. Um, but coffee is so widely consumed, and coffee farmers always get the short end of the stick. They always get it rough. Um, whether they're getting fair trade prices or commodity grade prices, they're, they're still getting it rough. They're getting minimum wage or worse, you know? And when you think about how that would impact you or your best friend or your sibling or, you know, your significant other, like what if they were getting minimum wage or less? And maybe they are, 
getting minimum wage, but they're probably not getting less because minimum wage is the minimum here in this country. And that's nice that we have that. And coffee farmers don't have that. The fair trade thing is, is not universal. It's not a minimum wage for everybody. It's a good established thing to kind of put that there, but it's still just not enough. We always should be doing more and doing better. And with coffee, it's something that's important to all of us. We want it to stick around and we want to do better. So how do we do better? How do we, how do we make this impact? And it can be really daunting to make an impact on something that's this global. But it's really not that hard because all you have to do is buy coffee from a small independent roaster. Because if you buy coffee from a small independent roaster, your chances of buying a coffee that have been ethically sourced, transparent with a transparent supply chain and an ethical price for the coffee, your chances of paying that ethical price, you know, as a consumer who's paying it to the cafe, who's paying it to the roastery, who's paying it to their importer or direct trade partner, or what have you, your chances of that supply chain and that that money chain being ethical and ultimately resulting in the farmer doing better than minimum wage is astronomically higher than if you go to any corporate chain or buy any coffee from a corporation out of a grocery store. And, you know, it's easy to toss around the word corporation. You know, my, my company is a corporation. So like, let's not get too hung up on that verbiage there. But, you know, the idea is if you shop small with coffee, if you go to a smaller shop and especially one that is a roaster that roasts their own coffee and in any way talks about the origin of the farm itself or the, the producer itself. If you see the name of a farmer or the name of a farm or the name of a, a mill or processing plant on the bag of coffee from a country, your chances of getting an ethically sourced coffee are astronomically higher. And therefore, why not? And then you're going to try a bunch of cool new places. So these direct trade coffees for me represent, you know, the pinnacle of that achievement where I know easily that these farmers are getting paid well and that they're working their butts off to earn that payment. And so why wouldn't I want everybody to win? Why wouldn't I want that farmer to win and for you as the consumer to win and get this great coffee? Well, I think it's interesting. It's not interesting. I know you. I know this is the type of thing that you do, but you are celebrating your anniversary by uplifting uh, two other farmers. And I think you should shout out the two farms that you're working with. I know the coffees that you have that are special for your anniversary are in very limited quantities, but you are working with them on larger larger orders and larger quantities of coffee that'll be readily available a little bit throughout the year. But what is it that you're doing special for this weekend? Well, um, the first coffee I'll talk about is from our direct trade partners at Coast, in Costa Rica. Uh, the farm is called Cafe Corazon, and our contact at the farm, Johnny, helped build a huge amount of infrastructure on the farm. And he acts as our go-between between, between uh, us and the actual owner of the farm, Henry. And Johnny has helped this farm, not just by investing in the infrastructure, but by listening to what the farm owners wanted and asked for and helping them achieve those goals. Um, he has helped their farm increase the specialty of their produced quality tremendously. So Cafe Corazon already was growing and harvesting some excellent coffee. Um, and they grow a couple varieties of coffee on their farm. They grow Katura, which is a very popular South and Central American variety of coffee that's considered specialty um, and tastes great, but is very disease susceptible. They grow Katuai 
which is not quite as highly regarded for the specialty aspect, um, but is a little bit hardier for disease and still quite nice. And then they have a couple other plantings around the farm of some other varieties um, that are really interesting and that we haven't played around with too much, but I've had some samples of. They have a mocha variety. This is very small bean variety that's very specialty and very sought after, and that's phenomenal. And we didn't import that one this year. But we did get a mixture of the Katura Katuai blend. Um, they blend those two varieties together. And we got it as a black honey process. And so some of the infrastructure Johnny's invested in is processing equipment, including honey processing equipment. And he's built a whole processing mill on the farm. And so the black honey was our flagship coffee for a number of months, starting, I think, last February. Um, and it was a great balanced coffee with some nice fruit notes to it that were more subtle. And it made really beautiful espresso with kind of some uh, some dark fruit coming out, some figs, dates, some black cherry, but also a nice rich dark chocolate and just just sweet and juicy and bitter and dark and all the all the things you want out of a great coffee. But because they have all this infrastructure down there, they also do some experimental processing. Um, Johnny and Henry are very proud of their anaerobic processed coffees. And I've never been a big fan of the taste of anaerobic coffees, uh, but I am a big fan of naturally processed coffees. And they have a natural process on that same Katura Katuai blend that we had the black honey from. And the natural process is the dry processing that really brings out the fruit flavors in the coffee. So we were able to secure a small batch of the natural process coffee this year. And we're going to be releasing Cafe Corazon's natural process. We have one small batch of it. Uh, we might be able to get a second, but we have one small batch that we're going to be roasting and launching for this week. It's really beautiful. I'm really excited. I'm nervous to roast it because I want to make sure I do a good job and uh, I don't have a lot of it. But I think since I know his other coffee pretty well, and now that we've gotten you know a bit of experience under our belt, I think we can get a, a pretty good result out of it. So that's the first coffee that we're releasing, is uh, Cafe Corazon's Natural Process Katura Katuai Blend. And I'm really excited about that. I love a good natural. We just released a new natural Ethiopia at our shop, and this will be a great counterpoint to that to just show off how cool it is that you can take a Costa Rica coffee and make it this unique but the other coffee we have was actually a gift from our newest direct trade partner, Juan Urquia. And Juan and his business partner, Liliana, and Juan's brother, Pedro, found our cafe on a visit to San Diego about a year ago. They asked if I ever served any coffee from Honduras. And I had to say no, I had never served a coffee from Honduras before. And we talked a little bit about it. And I sent them to go meet my friend Luis at Asento Coffee. And I went down and I met them down there and we started chatting and they started, uh, they decided that they would bring us some samples. So they had planned to come back up to the United States again a couple months from that meeting. And they said, we'll bring you lots of samples. And so they brought me samples from their farm, green samples, and we roasted them and we loved their coffee. We currently are serving a honey processed coffee from them. It's got a lot of like candied almond and dark chocolate and even like kind of a bit of like a marshmallow sweetness to it. So it's really easy to drink, real classic coffee. But just like Cafe Corazon grows Katuai and Katura, so does Juan Urquia. He grows Katuai and Katura. Again, very common popular varieties down there that are, that are high quality. Um, 
but one of the varieties that Juan grows that's special is he grows a, ge uh, a geisha variety, a geisha variety. Um, and the geisha variety of coffee is highly sought after. Um, the most famous ones are grown in Panama, which is not far from Honduras. Juan is in the Marcala region of Honduras, and his coffees are, are truly excellent. But Juan has gifted us with a small batch of washed geisha variety coffee from his farm down in Marcala in Honduras. And the geisha variety is well known for exhibiting, you know, uh, classic tasting notes of silky jasmine and sometimes grape jelly or, you know, some citrus notes, um, but really elegant, um, almost tea-like and delicate. Given that I haven't actually sampled this coffee yet, but I've tried a number of other samples from Juan's farm. I expect it to be a fairly rich geisha, fairly rich and satisfying, but still exhibiting some of those more delicate notes. So I'm excited to try it. I'm excited to share it with you all. I think it was really special that Juan was so excited about his partnership with us that he wanted to gift this to us. And he wanted to share this with us and he was proud of it. And he said, hey, this is my hard work. And you appreciate it. So let me give you something else to show you how much I appreciate you appreciating it, you know? <laughs> Very cool. And it's just not, it's, it's a cool feeling to know that like I can come get a cup of coffee, give you my five, six, seven dollars. It goes into your register and you are on the other side of that, giving money to Juan and Ileana and, and that direct, it, it, yeah. it maybe there's a little bit more in the middle there, but there's not these 20, 30 different steps in between yep. where a little penny is getting taken out here, two pennies here. Yep. It, it's more of a direct uh, process, which is the point of direct trade. Yeah. You are, I don't want to say famous uh, for being on this show yeah. and always talking about how you are comfortable with your customers adding things like dairy products to their coffee, which maybe some high-end coffee shops would frown upon. Uh, you always, <laughs> you always tell me that it's like, you know, adding, adding milk or adding dairy to your, to your coffee is kind of like ice cream. You know, you're just creating this ice creamy flavor to it. I'm wondering kind of more specifically, how does adding sugar or adding a dairy product impact the chemistry of coffee? What is happening to change that process? Is that something you can answer or that you have thoughts on? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a chemist, despite my love of coffee chemistry. Um, chemistry was actually a pretty hard class for me for some legitimate reasons, not because my mind isn't well suited to it, because I think it probably is. But when I teach coffee chemistry to people and I talk about coffee extraction, you know, I start by talking about how coffee has over 800 different aromatic compounds that the human palate can detect. And that makes it the most complex tasting beverage in the world. And then as we go deeper into learning about the mechanics of how coffee extracts, how we get good tasting stuff from the inside of the coffee beans or grounds, and we extract it into the water that we're using to make the coffee whether it's espresso or cold brew or flash chill or pour over or batch brew or whatever it is. When we talk about trying to get that stuff out from the coffee ground and into the water, despite there being 800 different compounds or so, I tend to break the compounds that we care about down into four main groups. 
So it's a very, <laughs> you could say it's a vast oversimplification as a proxy for understanding how coffee extracts and for a rubric for getting yourself to get good results out of a cup of coffee, it works really, really well. So we talk about acids, salts, and caffeine as three of the categories. And then we talk about sugars as another. And so acids, salts, and caffeine all extract very easily and quickly because they're small, simple molecules is my understanding. And sugars, sucrose, fructose, lactose, all that kind of stuff, those tend to be bigger, heavier, more complex molecules, and they don't dissolve as easily in water. And I'll usually talk about, okay, if you take some table salt and you put it in a glass of water, it'll probably dissolve. If you take a spoonful of sugar and you put it in a glass of you know, room temperature water, it's not really going to dissolve. You need to stir the, sh stir the heck out of it, or you need to make the water really hot before you add it, or, or both. Uh, if you want to get that sugar to melt and dissolve and make a solution of your water, you know, you want that sugar to mix in the water. You don't want grains of sugar floating around in the water. You want sugar water. Um, well, I mean, maybe you do, <laughs> but you're, we're talking about coffee here. And so we extract all our caffeines, acid, caffeine, acids, and salts. And that's very easy to do. And caffeine tastes bitter. And acids, where we get fruit flavor, like citric acid, like citrus flavor, tastes sour if you drink citric acid on its own. And salts taste salty or even metallic. Um, fair variation in salts. But if you pair caffeine with sugar, you get bitter plus sweet, you get bitter sweet. So rather than eating, drinking something that's bitter, you drink something that's bittersweet, kind of like dark chocolate. When you pair acids with sugars, you get something that's juicy rather than sour. Kind of like the difference between a lemon and an orange. A lemon is more sour, an orange is more juicy. And when you talk about salts, rather than tasting something salty or metallic, you think about something like salted caramel, where the salt can act as a flavor enhancer to the sugar and actually make it taste, you know, perceptibly more sweet. I did air quotes there. Nobody can see them because I'm on a video chat, but I did air quotes there. I don't know why. So when we're talking about adding sugar and milk and cream to our coffee, you know, there's there's a... The easy school of thought says that sugars and milk fats are going to cover the taste of the coffee and blanket it and smother it and make it hard to taste the other things that are in there. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong. That doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing because maybe you don't want something that tastes juicy, bittersweet, and, you know, like salted caramel. Maybe you just want something that tastes sweet and creamy and like ice cream. Um, and I think there's an argument to be said for a little bit of, you know, cream maybe enhancing the flavor because you've added a little bit of lactose sugar to it, which can enhance the flavor because we're already trying to get the naturally occurring sugars out of the coffee bean. Um, and so maybe there's not quite enough sugars for your palate. Maybe you're so used to eating sweeter things that, you know, your brain is kind of deleting some of that sweetness from what you're experiencing. And oils carry a lot of flavor to them. Uh, flavor oils in, in coffee um, do carry a lot of different flavor compounds. And so the fats in the milk could potentially act as sort of a vehicle to help carry that to you. I think in general... You would look at it as smothering the taste of the coffee is is the easy answer and and it's a true answer and there's there's nothing 
nothing to really disagree with that. Like maybe, maybe a tiny bit of enhancement occurs, but probably more smothering occurs than enhancement. But that doesn't matter because Juan or Henry or Johnny, none of them care necessarily that every single person who drinks their coffee tastes the subtle note of jasmine and night blooming cirrus, you know, from their, from their coffee. They just care that you're enjoying it and that you're rewarding their hard work. You know, they want to make a good product so that we'll pay a good price for it because we also serve the people that are looking for those deep subtleties, you know, and nobody's palate is perfect. You can train your palate to pick up a lot of different things, but it's, it's pretty easy to find yourself in an echo chamber of, well, I taste this every day. And so therefore I don't notice it anymore. You know, I used to make my coffee with some pretty poorly filtered water and I just got used to drinking it that way. And so I could get some good tasting notes out of the coffee. And then if I made it for someone who used, you know, uh, reverse osmosis water with third wave water, you know, additives added back in or whatever their, you know, favorite coffee water additives are, maybe they thought my coffee, I, they couldn't taste the subtlety because I had too many contaminants. I did air quotes again from my poorly filtered water. So, you know, at the end of the day, whenever I'm training someone on how to taste coffee and to pull out tasting notes and to think about what they're tasting, it doesn't matter if I say it tastes like elderflower and you say it tastes like wisteria blossoms and Ryan says it tastes like diner coffee. It doesn't matter if the three of us totally disagree on that. What matters is, did I like it? Did Ryan like it? Did the other person like it? Can I tell the difference when I put this side by side with something else? Or can I tell the difference when I think about the last cup I had compared to this cup? Do I like this one better or worse? And it's entirely possible that, you know, you might like your coffee, my, my coffee worse than the last coffee you had. So if you want to add cream and sugar to it, I don't care if it masks the flavor that I get out of it. As long as you're enjoying it, I'm happy. As long as we're participating in a good ethical supply chain, I'm happy. Sugar tastes good. We're wired to like the taste of sugar. It activates pleasure centers in the brain. I like pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds dirty when you say it. If you were to give somebody, let's just say me, advice specifically, I have always drank black coffee. There was advice that was given to me when I first started drinking coffee 12 years ago, and I never stopped to just drink the coffee and see what I could taste. Over the past year or so, I've slowly started adding in like a little bit more uh, macchiatos or cortados or lattes and cappuccinos into my drinking, mostly because I'm drinking a lot more coffee than I have in the past. But if you were to say to someone who is a black coffee drinker or a diner coffee drinker who is drinking to mask their coffee, but maybe wants to be a little bit more pretentious isn't the right word, but wants to be a little bit more nuanced about it, and is yeah. conscientious about the sugar, about the milk, about whatever they're putting into their coffee so that it actually enhances instead of masks, what, what tip might you give them? First of all, just to tangent very slightly, you know, what you just said reminded me of a, of a good aspect of coffee chemistry, adding milk to it that I, I didn't address, which is milk can help balance the acidity of coffee since milk is more basic, more alkaline. So it can be gentler on your stomach to add some milk. And that is a, definitely a good 
argument for it. Put that aside and pretend that I said it earlier in the episode. And to answer your question of giving someone advice who's, you know, having a fair amount of cream or sugar and wants to kind of explore that other direction, I would say, first of all, cut out the sugar before the cream is what I would recommend. You know, sugar, despite it being able to kind of complement some things, it does overwhelm tastes pretty, pretty strongly. It's probably also better for you to have less sugar overall. Uh, we tend to have a lot of sugar in our diets in this country and having less is probably good. And there is, should be some natural sweetness to coffee. A cup of black coffee has about five calories and most of that comes from naturally occurring sugars. And then if you're adding milk or cream or, you know, any kind of dairy or even most non-dairies to it, there's often, you know, in, in dairies, at least there are naturally occurring sugars. Lactose is a sugar. Anything that ends in OSE is usually a sugar. So you're already going to have some natural sugars being added to it by adding the milk. Um, so I would say, you know, slowly cut back your, your sugars first and explore that. If you get, you know, a sweet latte, try getting it half sweet. And even if you know that you prefer it full sweet, just keep drinking it for a little while because we really do get uh, stuck in these kind of patterns in our palates and in our, our tastes. And it's just like any habit, it, it's breakable. You know, it's not necessarily easy to break, but you can break it. You know, I, as a kid, loved soda. If I have a sip of soda now, I, I am just like, what the heck is this? I can't even do this anymore because it's been so long since I've had something with that high sugar content in a drink that it just tastes weird to me. It tastes bad. So if you make yourself go with less or without it for long enough, you will then suddenly, if you try it again, realize that it is just very sweet and over the top. So kind of get this fat, that familiarity aspect in there. And then I'd also say to experiment with espresso-based drinks that are sort of more traditional drinks. You know, so if you are black coffee with cream and sugar, like lots of cream, lots of sugar, or like a good amount of each or whatever, even like what you consider not a good amount, but like, you know, just the right amount. Try going with a latte. Because a latte is going to be more milk than coffee, like by volume. Um, but it will have still a good amount of coffee in it. Because the milk has enough naturally occurring sugars, that should, you know, hopefully trick your brain enough to being able to enjoy it. It will be over faster, probably. You'll drink it faster. Um, but that's okay. And then once you've gotten used to a latte, try scaling down the size, but keeping the amount of coffee the same. So do less milk, still do the espresso um, steaming milk thing, because the steaming of the milk can really bring and the, the right temperature on the milk can really bring out the naturally occurring sugars, kind of make them more noticeable to your palate. We try to steam our milks around 130, 135 degrees for most of our drinks, a little bit lower for the smaller drinks just to compensate for the heat of the espresso, but that's going to really make those lactose sugars more noticeable to your palate. And then eventually, you know, you could keep going down in size on those espresso and milk drinks and go latte, short cappuccino, cortado, macchiato, and then you're just about ready for a straight espresso. Or if that seems a little too intense, or if the macchiato is too intense, then you go back and you try a black coffee with some cream, because you'll realize that then the cream can be kind of enhancing the flavor of that black coffee. And you'll get to really taste what's happening in that espresso in your short cappuccino or your cortado. And you'll really taste what's happening in that brewed coffee. My issue with espresso has nothing to do with coffee and everything to do with duration is it disappears so quickly. 
that I don't feel like I get to enjoy that experience. It feels like abrupt. And for me, coffee is something that I really take my time with. It's one of the few breaks that I give myself in a day. And so that's one of the reasons that I don't drink as much espresso as, as I might, because I actually really enjoy it and I really enjoy the flavor of it, but I limit myself more to. You drank 24 ounces of drip coffee in less than an hour a couple weeks ago when you were at the shop, when I was at the KUSI segment, 24 ounces of coffee. You drank two 12 ounce coffees in that one hour you were there. Yeah, but I experienced time time so (laughs) <laughs> that is me taking my time with it. That's <laughs> that's me taking a lot of time with it. I was I was uh, I was just, just sipping away, but I had no distractions. You know, you were crushing the interview. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to do anything. Chris, I really appreciate you being back on Roast West Coast. I'm going to ask you one last question, but I'm going to give you a one minute time limit to answer it. <laughs> And I might cut you off faster than that. I can do it. I can do it. We were talking earlier about uh, your anniversary and about succeeding five to six years, however you want to look at it. In your dreamland, where is Coffee Cycle five years from now? Right where it is today. With me having the opportunity to travel to some coffee-producing countries more, to participate in more direct trade relationships. Not bad. I'm proud of you. Ah. I didn't even have to give you the extra 30 seconds. So, ah. Chris, thank you for being here. Congratulations on the milestone. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you next week. We'll get into something a little uh, that sounds less technical, but um, actually there's a lot going on there with tamping. I'm really looking forward to that. Enjoy the weekend. See you, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Okay, to recap, I asked Chris a question about his special 5th anniversary direct trade coffee releases, expecting a quick, they're great, you'll love them sort of answer. That was my bad. I know from years of experience as both his colleague and friend that direct trade and equitable pay for coffee farmers is a passion for Chris. For some context on the conversation we just had, I did some Googling, and since 1975, the commodity price and the consumer price of a gallon of milk in the United States has fairly consistently gone up. There are, of course, ups and downs, but the graph for each starts in the lower left and ends in the upper right. The price peaked in 2005 at an average price of $3.20 per gallon and has hovered just below that ever since. The demand and production for milk has gone down in recent years with the influx of milk alternatives. With coffee, the graphs aren't quite so uniform. For consumers like you and me, buying a standard batch brew cup of coffee, the price has gone up by a few cents on average year after year. That jump gets more dramatic when you look solely at craft coffees, which have grown in popularity exponentially, especially over the past half decade. However, the price being paid to farmers has not been growing each year. In fact, the commodity price for a pound of coffee, the money that's being paid to the coffee farmer, peaked 45 years ago in 1977. Back then, farmers were getting paid an average of $3.35 per pound. That number has fluctuated drastically since then. The graph goes way up, way down, way up, way down, 
At its lowest, it was $0.45 cents in 2001. Today, the average sits around $2.21 per pound, 35% less than it was in 1977, despite the demand for coffee growing drastically. This is one of the reasons that making an effort to buy from craft coffee roasters, who make an effort to source coffees ethically, is so important. At Coffee Cycle, I know that Chris is regularly purchasing coffee between $3 and $8 per pound, a significant amount for a small shop working on the margins. Roast industry partner Moster Coffee sometimes pays upwards of $9 or even $10 per pound in their effort to ensure that farmers, especially farmers in the Philippines, are making enough money not only to survive, but to thrive. As for Chris's direct trade offerings from Honduras and Costa Rica, I can confirm that they are freaking awesome, and with a limited quantity, they probably won't last very long. Even after all of the coffee I've drunk and all that I've learned about coffee, there is still part of me that is just tickled that a cup of coffee can taste of jasmine or grape jelly or even my nemesis tasting note, blueberry. We learned today that Chris isn't a chemist, but thankfully for me, he sometimes plays one on this podcast. In a vast oversimplification, he broke down a coffee drink into four distinct compounds, acids, salts, caffeine, and sugars, including fat sugars. While drinking a cup of coffee black will enable you to taste every possible flavor compound the coffee bean offers, it's okay to add a spot of something if it makes that coffee more enjoyable for you. Chris suggested keeping the cream or the dairy, but maybe cutting out the straight sugars. As always, the best coffee to drink is the coffee you enjoy. I want to say congratulations to Chris, the Coffee Cycle community, and everyone who has stepped up onto the barista platform behind the Coffee Cycle bike to brew a coffee. Five years is nothing to sniff at. Enjoy those cupcakes, and thanks for supporting the growth of Craft Coffee, Chris. Thanks, as always, for sharing your knowledge with me and the listeners of Roast West Coast. The fun part about that is Chris probably won't listen to this show, so he has no idea that I've thanked him like five times already. If you're listening and you want to see what's on offer at Coffee Cycle, head to coffeecycleroasting.com or follow at coffeecycleroasting on Instagram. They've brought back their homemade pumpkin spice for the fall, so if you are going to add a bit of something to your coffee, you might start there. Thanks to the rest of this show's roast industry partners, including Cafe La Terre, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Ignite Coffee Company, Marea Coffee Company, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, Ascend Coffee Roasters, and Mostra Coffee Company. Get your Mostraland Experience tickets now. Their anniversary is only a month away. Details on MostraCoffee.com. Those links can be found on RoastWestCoast.com. Please check it out and subscribe to the newsletter. Shout out to Mr. Scott. Thank you for becoming a paid supporter. It is always a boost when I see another name added to the list. This show can be found wherever great podcasts are found, including Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. And it really helps us out if you tap that five stars review button. You can also find links to all of the streaming podcast options at the bottom of every newsletter post on roastwestcoast.com. Thank you all for listening and supporting this show and for being out there drinking craft coffee. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this episode has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through the day. 
always tip your baristas and be sure to drink good coffee.